You're listening to The Peak Podcast with me, Christina Roman. We're having real, intimate conversations about the interconnectedness of life. Join us as we discuss big topics like intuition, personal mastery, and emotional wellness and why they matter for you. Hi, do you want to introduce yourself to The Peak Podcast? Sure. I'm so excited to be here. My name is Bendita Cynthia Malakia. And I do diversity, all things diversity. You have the best title on LinkedIn. I'm just going to read it out because I want you to talk a little bit about what it looks like day to day. Mm -hmm. So you have diversity and inclusion strategist, change agent, lawyer, coach, and board secretary of the National LGBT Bar Association. That's quite a title, my friend. (laughs) It's a lot of stuff. And thankfully, it's a bunch of different uh, titles and and activities that are cobbled together. Yeah. And I'm just lucky that I've been able to somehow put my passions together with my education and my interests to Mm -hmm. come up with a bunch of different uh, meaningful activities to do what I consider to be my life's work. And that is to make more opportunities uh, for people who who are just like me. Okay. Okay. And so has that kind of, I assume that everyone's career has always kind of just been, like you said, cobbled together in like a winding path, but was there a moment where you had an aha moment that this is exactly what you wanted to be doing? It's interesting. You know, being kind of a a queer woman of color, I've always thought about identity Mm -hmm. and especially growing up in non-diverse spaces. uh, I've always thought about how my identity interacts um, with my opportunity and the way that I walk through the world. And so I have always been involved one way or another in diversity and inclusion. In high school, I was in charge of the diversity group. College, I was in charge of the diversity group. Um, And uh, law school, I was very involved in lots of diversity initiatives as well. And so this has always been something that has been really meaningful to me and extremely personal. And it's something that a lot of people who pay attention to it don't necessarily leverage their technical skills in the furtherance of it or their power in furtherance of it. And I'm just lucky to be able to have the will and desire to do that. When I was in college, I wrote uh, my thesis um, about intersectionality and how all these identities come together. And even though I took a little bit of a veering path into development finance, I ended up right back in some sense where I started in doing diversity and inclusion work. Uh, There are a lot of people who ask, why did you give up practicing law? And I'm not sure I've given it up entirely. Don't let my boss hear that. (laughs) Um, But uh, what I have done is not allow education or circumstance to be an anchor um, and to constrain me from doing the things that I'm most passionate about. We are people and we are alive and whatever our interests are, so long as we're able to take care of ourselves in a meaningful way and we're not doing anything unlawful unless we are being conscientiously unlawful, Mm -hmm. um, I think we have a duty to ourselves and to the people around us to pursue it. I love the way that you talk about your career. And I also Mm -hmm. want to make a pit stop back at intersectionality. Yes. So I know that this is a word that a lot of people understand, but I think a lot of people listening probably don't fully understand what that means. Can you just define that for us and talk about why it's important? Sure. So scholar Kimberly Crenshaw in the late late 80s, early 90s, coined the term intersectionality. And for her, what that meant, and she was mostly looking at race and gender, which is somewhat the historical way that we look at diversity. Diversity is a little bit broader, uh, is conceived of a little bit more broadly now. 
But uh, she was looking at the ways that these diverse categories, so people who are marginalized in one category and marginalized in another category, how putting that together leads to discrimination that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm -hmm. So rather than discrimination on the base of race and gender being an, having an additive or summative effect, it actually has a synergistic effect. So instead of one plus one equaling two, one plus one equals four. Mm, okay. Can you give a specific example of that? that sure. You see? So one example might be uh, you know, kind of the common example that's given in these circumstances might be around around hair, for instance. So black women, and I identify as being a black woman, so I'm being a little bit selfish with my airtime right now. <laughs> that's uh, what you're here for. <laughs> black women, uh, you know, they experience a, a burden of being of, of race. Right. So within racial spaces, they tend to be subjugated um, to men. There's a lot of history and a lot of books from the Black Panther Party and the civil rights movement all the way to present day about how even in the fight for civil rights on the basis of race, women were subjugated within the movement. Um, and then similarly, in the women's rights movement, a lot of times you see how women of color will be excluded. And so uh, there was a lot of fight around uh, the women's marches that occurred around Trump's inauguration. Mm -hmm. um, talking about the exclusion of women of color on the main stage and in organizing um, and in having a real visible presence because they were used you know they were used to uh, they were used to organize but they definitely didn't have airtime and they didn't have a they weren't part of the face of the efforts and so you experience discrimination on both of these ends there's also discrimination that's unique so there have been uh, there have been organizational policies designed around um, pro deprofessionalizing black women's natural hair. Mm -hmm. And that's not something that's or something that's ever really happened for white women. And it's something that has rarely happened um, for black men. There are certain small circumstances or cornrows or other types of, of African-American um, men hairstyles um, will be, you know, regulated in a way that's uh, additional to the general, you know, be professional at work regulation. Mm -hmm. uh, but there are definite uh, circumstances where people who have multiple, you know, minority diversity characteristics um, will experience lots of different discrimination that they have to figure out how to navigate. And sometimes you don't know what it is. You don't know, are, are they stopping me because of it, because I'm black? Are they stopping me because I'm a woman? Are they stopping me because I'm with a woman? Um, so what, you know, what is it exactly? And, and having to experience that additional anxiety and stress and uh, what I like to call it, it's, it's a bit of a nervous condition, mm. which is constantly waiting on you, weighing on you when you're trying to navigate through the world. It's interesting to have this conversation with you because I brought you on par for twofold. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, we had a prep call and we talked a lot about your personal experience. Yes. And you also do this professionally for your work. So yes. I think you also can bring in the lens of research and conceptual understanding paired with personal experience. Mm -hmm. So... I just want to prep you again that that's the direction we're going to be going is sure. kind of molding that together. Yeah. Um, so how does this show up? I know you said you you always have that question in your mind of why am I being stopped? Is it this reason, this reason, or this reason, or all three? So how else do you see that show up in your everyday life? Sure. At work, the most challenging 
thing. And I see this a lot with our new diverse associates and sometimes our diverse business services professionals who have identities and they organized in a different way when they were coming from law school or from other organizations, potentially nonprofits. And they want to be, you know, have be, have a full court press on diversity. And they don't necessarily understand how diversity works in the context of an organization mm. and that you have to be strategic and that you have to save yourself when you are having this constant pressure of thinking about, is it this? Is it this? You know, is it because I'm, you know, is it race? Is it gender? Is it sexual orientation? Is it disability? Or is it just because I suck? <laughs> you know, like, thinking about all those things and trying to figure out, you know, what is it in this particular circumstance? Because sometimes we just suck. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it can be challenging to for people to figure out where the line, where you should draw the line, because we do need to save ourselves. All of that anxiety has been demonstrated to have physical and psychological effects that can be deleterious long term. It can lead to worse health outcomes long term. So we need to figure out When's the moment that we say something? When do we advocate? When do we decide to speak up versus not speak up? Do we speak up for ourselves? Do we speak up for others? Do we advocate for systemic change? Do we, you know, turn over the table? You know, do we, you have to figure out what are you going to do in that particular circumstance? And that can be the most taxing and most challenging. And when you translate your personal feelings and diversity and inclusion, regardless of how much I try to separate the personal from the professional, it to me, it's all incredibly interwoven for better or for worse. I bring my whole self into uh, everything that I do, but especially in advocating um, for diverse people in the context of the firm, when I coach clients, when I consult with organizations, I try to bring my whole self and bringing my whole self necessarily means that sometimes my own feelings are getting hurt in the process. But I have to be able, if I'm going to be a strategic and thoughtful advocate, I have to be able to set that aside in order to be effective. Because we all know what people think about over-emotional women and how they (laughs) respond to them. And we all know how much you know, how much the angry black woman trope gets put on and how it can dismantle the subject of what you want to say and mean that you're not as effective. And my goal in all things, regardless of my personal feelings, is to be effective. Mm. You made so many really interesting points that I want to go back and revisit. So one, you said we have to save ourselves. What does that mean to you, really? It's to use a, a phrase that I don't I have a complicated relationship with. To me, it's about self-care. And I was at a board meeting a couple of years ago around the Trump uh, election. And I was asked uh, by um, uh, a person at the meeting to talk about what does it look like to care for ourselves in this age, being people who feel vilified by the current administration. What does it look like? Uh, how what, how does it look like to take care of ourselves? And so many people think about self-care as, am I, am I going to the gym? Am I eating well? And what I talked about that day, which I think is really the most important for all of us in our daily lives, of course, eat well, do what your doctor says, you know, do all those things. Mm-hmm. But to me, cognitive self-care is really important. And compartmentalization, for better or for worse, I don't know what the studies say about it, but it's my best friend. Being able to separate uh, my personal feelings sometimes from what's what's actually happening. So not taking things as a personal affront, recognizing that 
everything is not about our identity. Uh, sometimes uh, there are other things at play. Maybe people in this country wanted to, uh, you know, wanted to vote on the basis of for different reasons. And telling the board and coming together to talk about how can we put in some mental constructs in place to help protect ourselves, whether it's mantras, putting up the mental constructs that allow us to uh, navigate the world in a better way. So for instance, building communities that allow us to connect with one another and that uplift us, being around people who are going to strengthen us and be life-giving rather than life-depleting, putting mantras on our laptop screens, on our refrigerators, on our dresser mirrors, wherever uh, wherever we can have, we can find ways to strengthen our mental capability to be able to deal with the constant assaults. Uh, is incredibly important to us. And we have to be careful to do that. And we're the only people who can do it for ourselves. Your friends can tell you, wow, you're really great. And they should do that. Mm -hmm. And you have so much worth. And this is how you brought value to my life. We should all do that for one another. That is so powerful. And we need to be invested in one another to be able to care for each other in that way. But we also need to understand that only we can save ourselves. We are the beginning and the end for our own mental health and well-being. And it's our job to make sure that against all other things, whether it's trying to fight the good fight or whether it's trying to say to other advocates who are saying, let's go march or let's do this other initiative or we only have three more hours of work after a nine hour day and we can put this thing together and then this will happen. If that is going to be depleting, and if that is going to break you down, you have to save yourself first. It's I know you're a fellow coach, and so it's really interesting to me because I always say this to my clients is I can give you all the positive reinforcement in the world and your friends and family can say glowing things to you. But if you don't believe it, then there's, there's this internal wall that stops it. And yeah. so to your point, you only have yourself. In coaching, you know, we all know that so much of the game is – dividing the world between what you can control and what you can't control. Amen. And <laughs> figuring out how to deal with the items that you can control in a way that leverages your skills, your intellect, your education, the resources that you have from where you sit to be able to do that um, is powerful. It's when we start to try to change things that we don't have control or influence over. And when we try to change things that could be in our control, but with other people's resources, yes. uh, that is when we start to falter and we start to drain, get become drained and we start to deplete ourselves. And we have, this is a long fight. All of these are long fights. Anyone who's doing any social justice related work, whether it's environmental advocacy, whether it's advocating for children or diversity and inclusion, these are long fights and we have to be ready you know, for the road. You brought up a really interesting point that you and I have talked about before, which is this idea of what you can control and what you can't. And that was one of the big reasons that I wanted to talk to you is because the podcast is really about showing up for yourself so that you can show up for your community. Yes. And it's that idea that, like you said, you have to save yourself first in order to be of service to your community. So I'm really curious, how do you reconcile your 
let me figure out how we want to phrase this. <laughs> how do you reconcile, again, that self-care with a constant attention to what's happening in, in the greater world? I think you have to decide what you are going to care about. Yeah. And I'm very, to use maybe a not correct word here, militaristic about that. I'm the person who... When I'm walking on the street, it's like, these are the three causes that I give money to. These are the four sob stories I'm going to hear today. <laughs> and, you know, and, and that's it. You know, I've, you know, made my bed. I'm in the diversity and inclusion bed. And while I care about animals, my mother's got lots of them. I want a little bulldog named Rhino at some point in time, an English bulldog. <laughs> I'm sending it up to the universe. Manifest um, it. <laughs> exactly. I, you know, I care about climate change. I care about all of these things. I have limited energy and me and this body um, with my life experiences are best suited to do certain types of things. That's where I can be most effective. And so we have to start with looking at ourselves and having a realistic perspective on what you can what we can control and what we have the power to influence. And then when we do that, we need to take a look at where our gaps are and what our opportunities are and where are we not exactly where we should be? What questions should we be asking ourselves? We all want to be amazing advocates, but even all advocates aren't 100% 100 there for what we want to do. And my example, you know, would be, you know, I'm on, I'm secretary for the board of the National LGBT Bar Association. It's an organization that I love and we do tremendous work, um, both supporting uh, legal professionals all across the spectrum who are LGBT and in advocating for LGBT issues, including um, fighting uh, trans and gay panic defenses in various states across the country. And I'm very proud of that work. And I spend a significant amount of time trying to make sure that members of that community across the spectrum are supported. But I would be lying if I did said that I was a thousand percent correct on all of the issues. You know, I still occasionally mess up pronouns mm -hmm. and I work on trying to fix it, but I'm not a hundred percent there all the time. And so it's my job to look at myself and say, yes, I am a queer lawyer, queer legal professional advocate. I'm a queer community advocate. I still have work to do. And so it's my job to identify the gaps and to put you know, structures in place to work to try to improve the way uh, that I operate in that space so that I can be a more credible, uh, a more credible advocate and ally. Um, and unless we are vulnerable and unless we are able to really look at ourselves and take a take a hard, incisive look to see what our gaps are, we lack the credibility that allows us to be as effective as we could be. And I think not enough people really are willing to say, I'm great, except, you know, I'm great with, you know, advancing race relations, but I really believe in respectability politics, Right. If you can identify where your gaps are, you know, all of us will be all the better. Where do you start <laughs> if you have no idea where your gaps are? Like what it what was sure. what would be the first question that mm -hmm. you would tell someone to ask themselves? Sure. For diversity and inclusion, I think the first step is for us to realize that everyone has bias. 
Uh, and it doesn't matter who they are. I, Bendita Cynthia Malakia, have bias and uh, mostly implicit. I'm sure occasionally it ends up being explicit. Um, but uh, we all have bias. And it's my job to figure out what those biases are. And if that were the end of the story, that would be a really defeatist situation, right? It's really depressing. Right. We all have bias. We're just going to walk around hurting each other. The good news is there are ways to identify and unearth that bias. And then it's our job to figure out how to structure around it. And in our own life and the ways that we can influence and, and with the people that we can impact. And so one of the ways, and I think it's an easy way, it takes 10 minutes and it's been world tested over and over and over again, is the implicit, implicit association test. And uh, it is implicit.harvard.edu. And it takes 10 minutes. And there are a whole bunch of different tests that um, use a response rate mechanism with visual identification to determine what your biases are. And uh, the last time I took the test, I was biased for men, mm. biased for LGBT people, and biased for darker skinned people. Now, usually people are biased, almost universally biased against uh, darker skinned people and against LGBT people, but and and for men. So I'm in that way, I'm consistent with, I guess, gen pop. Um, but uh, it's useful for me to know that, not just to know it, not just to feel bad about it. But now I get the opportunity to say, what can I do? You know, these are some of these are populations I'm a part of. Like I'm a darker skinned person. I'm a minor. I'm a minority. I'm queer. You know, I'm not hurting those people by this preference, um, but it's still for me to make sure that I'm not unduly favoring those populations in the context of my work. And the same thing with men. I have to make sure that when I am in the context of my work um, doing diversity and inclusion um, or when I, whenever I have anything that I have control over, I may have assignments. I have may have the ability um, to mentor people. I may have the ability to coach or sponsor people. I may have the I may have money to give out or resources or access to conferences or whatever it is. It's my job to make sure that when I'm operating on these implicit biases, I'm not unduly favoring the groups that I've already identified that I have a bias for. Um, and over time, additionally, I can start to reduce that bias um, by continuing to educate myself, by continuing exposure, and by making sure um, that I'm building structures that take that bias into account. So one example is um, in the context of my work uh, at the firm, uh, my boss and I make sure that on a regular basis, we look at the opportunities that we have available for people and we cut them by demographic. We say, what's the demographic of the people that we sent to conferences? What's the demographic of the people that we provided access to coaching or, or you know, whatever it is, whatever those things are that we have um, access to or power and control over? And we cut it by demographics and we see, you know, where did we overstretch and where do we need to where do we need to pull back? Um, and it's an enlightening exercise. And what that gives us the opportunity to do is to constantly do better. So we can't eradicate bias entirely, but we can structure around it. And that's what I think everyone's responsibility is. I am going to put the link in the show notes for that implicit.harvard.edu. Mm -hmm. I am 
absolutely going to do it right after this. I'll be I'm nervous slash curious <laughs> about what I find. So you don't when, have to share it with anyone. <laughs> there you go. My little secret. But but I think that's an amazing first step in building awareness. And that's always, I mean, that's always the first step in coaching, right? Is just awareness. And then like you said, putting structure around it. Exactly. Can you do an overview of what other kinds of biases people should be aware of and paying attention to in their lives? Absolutely. And there are lots of different terms. And so you may have different terms for the same, uh, the same types of biases, but you know, one might be performance bias and performance bias is where we, uh, it, it can play out in one of two ways. We either give men more credit or non-diverse people more credit for what they've already done and discount what women or um, diverse people do um, in the context of their work. Um, we also look, and you see this a lot when we have applicate when there are applications for things, where um, we look at what how men um, what their possibility is. And for women, we tend to look at what, you know, for sorry, we look at what men's uh, possibility or potential is. But for women, we look at what their past performance was. And so so you already have had to have proven that you can do the job before doing it. And so when you look at all these studies that say things like, why do women only apply when they've got 100% of the characteristics and men apply when they have 60? Yes. We women and we diverse people need to work on that and realize that they're being responsive to a real phenomenon. And that phenomenon is that they're going to be measured on the basis of what they've already done. And so having 100% of the criteria is what is generally expected from women before um, they're selected for a particular role. And so all of us have a little more work to do. It's not e- It's not that we should just default to blaming the women um, for acting in a particular way that doesn't exude confidence. We should look behind to see what's at the root of that. And what's at the root of that tends to be performance bias. We've all heard about maternal bias, and that's bias against women um, that have children. And often it happens before women even have children. Uh, And sometimes women put it on themselves in anticipating a world where they're going to have children. But the crux of that is the idea that women with children are just not as committed uh, to their careers as other women or or men or others are. And what that does uh, is undercut their actual um, performance and it cuts them off from opportunities. People won't give them opportunities and most of the time don't even allow them the opportunity to choose uh, to choose what their lives are going to look like because there's this assumption of what it means to be a good mother and there's assumption of what it means to have a good career. And regardless of the fact that we're almost in 2020, we haven't moved beyond uh, that binary. So what do you do on both sides of that Mm -hmm. when you either notice that you have maternal bias Mm -hmm. or you're a woman who is is it accurate to say playing into maternal bias? Sure. Is that too much too much responsibility on the woman? I'm not sure. All, all <laughs> of us have responsibility. Okay. We, we are all we are all complicit in one way or another for for where our world is today. And I think the best thing to do when you have any of these biases is to call it out. And you can do this in so many ways. I think structure is our best friend. So 
if you're recognizing that there that the women on the team who are pregnant or who just get married and then people assume they're going to get pregnant or have children within a year or two afterwards, when you realize that all of a sudden the assignments are being moved from this person um, to another person, or when you realize that, oh, in the past, we would have suggested that she take the, the very important client trip to China. And now we're not even going to put it because she's got kids. You know, so she can't be on an airplane anymore, X, Y, and Z. And that may be true. And it may be that she doesn't want to do that, but it's not for um, our places of employment to decide that for us. And so what we can do is say, these are the criteria. These are the objective criteria that we are going to put in place for these particular activities, for promotion. You know, this is the amount of face time that's required. This is the amount, you know, having very, very clear uh, objective criteria for all of our work activities and measuring the candidates against those criteria, which hopefully are meaningfully related um, to successful performance of the job, uh, and then analyze that way. So when we're looking at, you know, the work trips, we're saying, okay, these are the three people who are suited and who are suited for on the basis of this criteria. And I would be very, very shocked if having children would be a criteria that anyone would dare to write down. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> you can get sued. <laughs> you can so you can so get sued. Yeah. There are so many other biases. I think one that's pretty common is affinity bias. Mm-hmm. And that's it's basically likeness bias. It's you like people who are like you. Uh, one thing, you know, one thing that my boss says is that she hired someone who was just like her, despite doing diversity work. Um, we are both black women. I happen to be queer. She's not. Um, but we have a lot of life uh, similarities that allow us to work together effectively. However, if we're only hiring the people who are like us and only mentoring, sponsoring, giving opportunities to, inviting to the social events, all of those things that make a difference um, for our work lives, then we are going to cut out um, the populations who don't exist at the level of having um, those things to be able to give out and provide. Um, because our more senior cadre at a lot of organizations tends to be um, you know, white, straight, cisgender men, We are going to have a lot more white, straight, cisgender men in power if we allow affinity bias um, to to perpetuate our decision making. There's also likability bias, which tends to impact people, uh, diverse people especially. Likability bias is, um, you know, where uh, women especially are penalized for not being likable, for not smiling, for not having the exclamation point at the end of the thanks of the email or putting the happy face after you say some, you know, you have some criticism of somebody that is, you know, justified. Um, And it's the tightrope that women balance. And um, because there is a direct counter uh, to uh, competence. So the studies show that competence is um, complete, that the more likable you seem, the less competent people deem you. But we expect women to be likable. And so what does that mean? What that means is that we are basically uh, developing a bunch of women who are likable, 
probably not incompetent, but we've decided they're incompetent people. And that's where you win, which is tokenism. It's window dressing. It's the one woman who was invited, but doesn't have anything, hasn't been given anything to say in the context of a meeting or, you know, or, you know, whatever it is. And so there's, it's a complete tightrope um, that women play on the likability versus competence scale. Damn. <laughs> I know it's so depressing, uh, right? It's so, so depressing. What do we do? I know. I, I just keep bouncing. I'm like, solve all my problems for me. I, yeah, I realize that's not your role here, but I think that obviously no, you have a lot of interesting research to share. Likeability bias is challenging, right? I mean, your job, a lot of times we have to temper what it is. And I think Rithu Basin, um, who's done a lot of work uh, through her book, The Authenticity Principle, and uh, and helping organizations um, recognize the balance between authenticity and uh, and being able, you know, to actually work and be received um, authentically. And she has in her model, she has what she calls the adapted self. And the adapted self is the self that you choose to show up at work with, where your values are being embodied and where you are able to, um, where you are able to not feel that the gutting that you feel or the, the horrible pain in the pit of your stomach that you feel when you're being inauthentic and hiding yourself. Mm. Um, but you may not wear, you know, the bright green hair that you wanted to wear, that you would prefer to wear every day, but you don't because it's work. Or, you know, you may, you know, dress in a different way than might be ideal to you. Um, but we have to choose. We have to choose um, what does authenticity look like for us at work? And how are we going to adapt our authentic selves so that we are not giving up a core piece of ourselves while being able to navigate in the workplace and be successful? And in that applies to likability bias because sometimes I smile when I don't necessarily feel like smiling mm-hmm. because I have to keep my eye on the ball. If the ball is move this project forward, if the ball is um, you know, get someone's buy-in, if the ball is that person will like me and will do what I need them to do for me only if I seem to like them, then I'm keeping my eye on that ball and I will do what I need to do to be able to achieve the best outcome, you know, for the people that I'm here to serve. So sometimes, uh, sometimes I put smiley faces where I might not have otherwise put a smiley face. Sometimes I reread emails for tone, but you will never win at work or it's rare to win at work if you are not competent. At some point in time, somebody will see that. And so hiding that only undercuts you in the long term. And so my advice is to be competent, but figure out the other ways to soften you that don't violate your core values um, to allow you to be a little more acceptable in the context of work. And I know that that's uh, controversial probably for a lot of people, um, but uh, like I said, I go for I go for effectiveness. And I know that if I show up guns blazing the way that I want to do on a daily basis and I don't moderate my tone or maybe smile a little bit or defer and let somebody else speak first, I need to do those things because the content that's coming is hard. And the things that I'm saying are challenging for people to deal with. And the communication and the topics that we're dealing with are really tough. They're really emotional and they're hard hitting. And the only way I'm going to be able to do that is 
successfully uh, is if I moderate a little bit in a way that doesn't undercut who I am as a person, but may not be my natural inclination for the way that I would have loved to have shown up. I think that's a really interesting distinction. It actually brings me back to one of the earlier points you made. And I, you might have kind of answered this, but how do you reconcile bringing your whole self with compartmentalizing? I don't necessarily believe in the concept of bringing your whole self to work. No one wants my whole self at work, right? <laughs> I am, uh, I have a lot of energy and a lot of childlike energy in my home. I am running around, I'm pulling pranks, I'm doing all sorts of things that I don't bring to work that they will put me out of. And that's just naturally who I am. I'm a little bit giddy, I'm a little bit goofy. Um, I love to joke. Um, I love all of those things, most of which aren't appropriate in the workplace, but they're completely me. And so uh, I don't believe in bringing your whole self to work. I believe in bringing your whole professional self Uh, to work, right? And we all get to decide who that is. And as a coach, uh, everything starts with values, right? What do you believe in? Who are you? And if you have a clear idea of what your values are and use that as the guidepost for how you choose to show up to work. And as a coach, you also know that the most important thing with values work is that you have to decide who you are, but you have to decide who you're not because everything cannot be your value. Everything cannot be a core value. And so if you're able to pick those three to five you know, core values that, that govern who you are and say, in this workplace, how would I behave um, such that I'm in alignment with the expectations that the job has together with the values that I have um, to create whoever my professional self is? And what that might lead you to the conclusion of is that the current work situation you're in may not be a place where you can bring your full, your whole professional self to work. Um, but it's worthwhile to think about what that looks like and to understand what you can do, what you can get away with, and what you can't. I think it is unrealistic. And I think there's some conflation today when we're talking about um, generational diversity, right? And we're talking about, you know, the, the never-ending conversation about millennials, right? Um, and Gen Zers or the iPhone generation. Um, you know, bringing your whole self to work. You know, I've heard some uh, some younger individuals talk about it and they talk about it like, well, I want to bring my animal to work and I want to, you know, I want to spend my whole morning, you know, working out and then I'll be right and ready at noon and then I'll work till nine or 10 p.m. Um, and, you know, Sometimes that works. You know, at, at my firm, we have a wonderful agile working policy. So people have lots of different ways to be able to work and work effectively. But there are some workplaces and some work situations that that just doesn't work for. And so I think that we have to think about what lies at the intersection between what is going to you know, violate your core fundamentally. And so for me, it's compartmentalizing my silly self mm-hmm. to after work or before work. You know, and in, I'm perfectly fine with that because um, I get fed in so many other ways on the basis of what I do because I've chosen a work environment um, that supports me and that allows me to wear my fishnets when I want to wear my fishnets and that allows me to change my hair, you know, every two or three weeks without a fuss. Like I get to largely be who I am. 
but I'm choosing the things that may be disruptive to my mission in the context of the workplace and to me getting a paycheck every couple of weeks. And I'm putting that to the side. And we just have, it's, you know, life is, life is challenging. Sometimes we just have to make hard decisions. Yeah. Yeah. I really like that point a lot because I mean, there's things that I didn't bring into my last workplace. Like mm. I curse on my coaching calls in a way that I would never curse in an office. Yep. And I think to your point, that's not sacrificing myself. That's just slightly different office decorum. Right. Um, but I love that you touched on the idea of values, which is a huge topic here on the Peak Podcast. We talk about it in every single episode without you fail. We do. <laughs> yeah. So I love that idea of what's really most core and most essential to you. And are you willing to trade off other things in order to, to in order those. to have that, mm-hmm. right? And yeah. if you're in a place that you can't meet your core fundamental values, then it may be time to either figure out how you can adjust the workplace um, to support, you know, your vision of what that looks like, or you may need another workplace. Yeah. Or you may decide that particular value doesn't need to show up at work. And I can do that in my post-work or pre-work life. Yeah, absolutely. Acceptable. So I really appreciate the overview of the biases. And I know you've mentioned two other really important things for people who are wanting to reassess the way that they're showing up for their communities. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us what the upstanders model is? Sure. The upstanders model originally comes from anti-bullying work. And so the term upstanders, I believe, originated there. Um, But it has been converted in other professional spaces um, to provide a four-pronged model for how you can be an effective ally to help advocate for others. And you're, of course, doing this once you've gotten yourself together. Right. You have um, you figured out what your own biases are. You know what your own values are. You understand the causes that you are going to go hard in the paint for and the ones that you're like, I really do want us to have. um, You know, I really do want us to, you know, get rid of colorectal cancer, but I'm not going to spend my days fighting for that. So you've made some hard choices and now you're ready um, to really um, to start advocating um, to using your talents and your skills and your education and your values and all the rest of that in furtherance um, of other people. And so Upstanders really looks at um, four different prongs, and that is to listen up, um, to show up, to talk up, and to speak up. And to listen up is all about learning. It's about hearing um, the stories of people who um, are suffering or who are impacted, whether positively or negatively. It's about reading. It's about understanding uh, the world around you. It's if you if you are an MSNBC person, it's about turning on Fox once in a while and seeing what's there. It's about talking to people who have different perspectives from you, regardless if it's on a traditional diversity demographic basis or if it's um, on some other basis. It's really about gathering um, knowledge and believing the stories of people when they say that things are happening. Um, Just because it isn't your particular experience, uh, it doesn't mean that it's not a valid experience. It's just not an experience that has happened for you, which for which you should be grateful. And so listening up is really about all, is all of the learning that you can do and that learning and that listening um, and about being, about taking a step back 
and centering someone else instead of centering yourself is really the entry point to being an ally. It's really hard to understand how you can most effectively engage in allyship without having some understanding of um, what's happening in the world and your positioning um, in it. To show up uh, is exactly what it sounds like. You know, when there are, you know, marches for immigrant children or when there are diversity events in the context of your firm or when your friend is going uh, to a poetry night, you know, for queer disabled people or whatever it is, it's about putting yourself in spaces um, that allow you to be able to support um, the, the work that's going on there that show demonstrates that even even though it may be a little bit uncomfortable for you, you are willing to put your dollars, your time, your other resources um, towards being there. And um, that you, in the process, you have to make sure that you're not disrupting you know, the space. You know, there are some spaces that aren't meant, um, that aren't meant for allies. And so it's important to understand, to pay attention to what the balance is. Um, but mostly, so long as you are coming with a sincere and open heart and a willingness to learn and support, uh, most diverse spaces wholeheartedly want um, allies and non-diverse people um, to come because they tend to have more power. And that's the way you get things done is by building bridges together. To talk up is about being an advocate. It's about coaching. It's about sponsoring. It's about mentoring. It's about saying, you know, wow, that project that I did last week, Christina knocked it out of the park. She gave me everything that I needed on time. I didn't have to chase her for anything. And she really made the difference in our showing to the client. It's about even when somebody's not asking you to, it's about lending your voice and credibility for people who aren't like you because people, you know, you have to recognize that you have privilege and people will receive you differently. And so there's power in that. So what are you using your power for? And when you don't speak up and when you in or talk up, um, you are perpetuating this, whatever the status quo is. Maybe that person won't get the credit they deserve. Maybe in the meeting, um, they won't get the credit for the idea that they had first, but that the other person raised and got all the accolades for. So talking up is really important. And the hardest part is, is speaking up. So when something happens, those icky moments, and we all, um, I won't say we all, but I'll say most of the time we know when they're there, right? Like you feel it at like Thanksgiving dinner, you know, when, you know, you're, you know, racist uncle or whoever it is says the comment, you know, you know, about some group and you're like, nobody even uses that term anymore. And does anybody else hear what I'm hearing? And, you know, in the pit of your stomach, it's about, it's about speaking up when it's going, when it's going to be effective. And maybe Thanksgiving with the racist uncle isn't most effective. Um, but it, but there, it can't be that there's never a time when, you don't have the ability or the capacity to speak up. So when you see something happening, when you see that someone's uncomfortable in another person's presence, sometimes it's just as easy enough to say, hey, what's going on here? Or, hey, does anybody need help with anything? Or when you hear something, you say, well, what I think they meant to say was Y instead of X. Uh, sometimes it's just easy to just do these little small interventions, um, but it does take some it does take some credibility and it does take a little bit of, of a hit. Like there's a little bit of a political, some political capital that you have to bargain with 
and, and, and being able to speak up. But that's really the pinnacle. When we are able to start going in spaces, we see and identify based on all the listening and the showing up and all the rest of the work we've been doing. And we see something happening to somebody that is um, not like us. And we have the opportunity to step up and say something, um, then we owe it to them. And we owe it to ourselves to say something, because I don't know about you, but when I haven't said something in the past, um, I think about it for a long period of time. And there's a little bit of a psychological tax um, that happens when you don't use the power that you've been given um, to do the small things, especially the small things that you can do. We're not, none of us are individually going to dismantle racism or sexism or homophobia or ableism or any of these, any of these structures. But what we can do is let somebody else know that what they said wasn't okay in that moment. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then I know that there's another model that you also taught me. Um, so ALLY, the mm-hmm. acronym. Is there anything from ALLY that's missing from upstanders? Where sure. So ALLY is, I like upstanders um, as a little bit of an entry level. These are the meta activities that you can undertake in order to kind of be a more, to be an ally to begin with, right? And there's a little bit of a progression from listen up to speak up and how uh, and how that presents itself. Um, the ally model, which is, you know, always uh, center the impacted, listen and leverage, uh, listen and learn from the impacted, um, leverage your privilege and yield the floor. That's more about how do you behave in spaces? So when you are in the space and you are among others and you have the opportunity to behave, what should you be doing? You should be centering. It shouldn't be about you, how your feelings were hurt because somebody called you out for your uh, for the microaggression that you said or for or a mistake even. Um, you shouldn't um, you know, spend the whole time talking and um, getting in the way of the people who actually have lived experience. Um, in the context of that space, you should definitely use your privilege when people, especially when people are asking for or would like you to use your privilege. Um, and so that might be get, being demonstrating good behavior, like giving up your seat um, or, or whatever uh, the activity might be and yielding the floor. Um, which is really hard for people. It's really hard for me because I just talk a lot. But it's re- <laughs> but it's really hard, I think, for people who are used to owning a room. Um, we've all been at the meeting where there's some man that just talks and talks and talks and won't say. It doesn't matter if it's relevant. Doesn't matter if it's not relevant. It doesn't matter if somebody else has a better example. And you know, so when you if, when that's the way you walk through the world, it can be challenging to push, pull that back when you are in a space where it is your primary job to be support and not primary. And so yielding, yielding the floor um, is an important skill to be learned. So I think upstanders is about, is about the key activities that you can undertake to be a good ally. And um, the ally model, which um, originally it's from one of the Black Lives Matter uh, founders, is more about um, how do you behave in those spaces? It's a little bit of the 2.0. I think it's really interesting. I always want to bring it back to coaching. Absolutely. And coaching is the best thing on earth. Of course. And it's, you know, fundamentally a a coaching podcast. And so I think it's really interesting what you just said about ally and Mm -hmm. the way that you're showing up in different spaces. Mm -hmm. And it occurs to me that an inability to yield the floor or an inability to leverage your privilege comes from your ego. 
Right. That oh, if, you, <laughs> if you're able to get down into what I call that inner voice or the intuition and down into that part of you that believes that all humans, I like to say, have a light in them, mm. what the Quakers say, or all humans have something valuable to add to a conversation. If you're really able to get down to that point, you're so much more able to let go of your need to speak or your need to dominate a room. And so I think that's just, I just want to reiterate, that's something I work with my clients on through coaching is how do you get down to that deeper part of yourself Mm. and that more value-driven part of yourself Mm. below just the ego mind that wants to speak, be heard, be the most important person. And that's really powerful because all of that, you know, you spend a lot of time talking about how do you move from, you know, you first, getting yourself in order to be able to help others. When you are so focused on on speaking, you are not actually giving a gift. The biggest gift we can give others is to listen and to validate and acknowledge their experiences and their perspectives. It doesn't mean we have to agree, um, but there is so much ego wrapped into the need to put yourself front and center and uh, to the detriment of, of everyone else. I was actually just on a coaching call before I headed over here this morning, and I was saying that I have a little metaphor that I use when I watch coaching happening. You can tell whether the coach is putting the spotlight on themselves or putting the spotlight on their client. And when they're putting the spotlight on themselves, it's so apparent that their mind is spinning and they're trying to look good in front of their classmates and they're trying to like look like a good coach and ask the right question. And that's a very, very different experience as a watcher than watching the coach shine the light on the client and it becomes about the client's experience and listening deeply and listening empathetically and holding space. It's so interesting to watch that difference. And I can imagine that having that metaphor in place in different environments where diversity is the thing that you're focusing on could be really helpful, right? Is shining the light on the person whose experience needs to be heard and not shining the light on yourself. That is a much more simplistic way of saying all of those words I just said. (laughs) So thank you for that. I'm glad I can provide some value. (laughs) You're providing a lot of value. You're providing a lot of value. Yeah, it's so it is so much about, you know, if we really want to help, let's help. You know, and and helping doesn't necessarily mean that we know all the answers. Oftentimes we need to listen and um, be where others might need us. And it's not to say that we don't have anything useful to give, but when we are doing all of that, we have to think about what are the failings and insecurities that I'm trying to address when I'm trying to put myself at the center of this. And as a coach, it's something that we constantly have to think about. We constantly have to look at ourselves and moderate ourselves um, to not get in the box and to make sure that um, every single thing um, that we are doing and we're saying, we are doing in furtherance of the client's goal and not our goal for the client. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no agenda. <laughs> that is yeah. huge. And, and the program that I'm in is holding space and not having an agenda and never assuming that you know the right answer for your client. I want to wrap a lot of this up with this one question, which is if you were coaching somebody Mm. and that person is a, what, the most PC way, a minority? Sure. Okay, great. (laughs) Uh, So, and that person is my minority and they have intense feelings about 
what's happening at a society level. Mm. What would you say to that person in terms of their own empowerment? Sure. I think first and foremost, I say control what you can control and leave everything else uh, to the side. So at a broader societal level, you can vote. You can try to convince other people to vote. You can organize. You can write letters. You can donate to nonprofits. There are so many activities that are within our control. We have to decide um, what is useful to us and where we're best positioned to help. And the rest of it, we have to let go because you have to save yourself first. And if your mental health deteriorates on the basis of what's happening at a societal level, you won't be good for yourself or your family. And we'll just be perpetuating the negative impacts that we think that the societal trends are already um, trying to um, promote and promulgate. So I would um, ask them to decide what is most important to them. And what about what's happening right now is preventing or prohibiting that from happening? And what I often find is that there are actual impacts. You know, we have children in cages at the border. We And I've had diverse lawyers come to me and say, why are we watching CNN at work? I can't work with this happening on screen. And so much of that is about being able to manage our own perspective and to be able to manage our own uh, psychological um, safety and our own mental health. And psychological safety is incredibly important. And so I would tell them before they want to go run off and do the millions of things that they could do, which are in their control, that they need to protect themselves first. They need to figure out what or who um, they believe in. Um, they need to dedicate themselves um, to their own strength. And then they can help where needed. Um, but you have to start with you first. And sometimes what we realize in the context of this broader society where all of these things are happening and it looks like our fundamental humanity and our ability to operate are being undercut, if we take an incisive look at ourselves, we can see sometimes where we are able, where we are in the position of undercutting our own progress. And so focusing inward, doing everything we can from where we sit after we've taken care of ourselves psychologically is really the best we can do. We live in a society. We will always live in a society. Some uh, administrations are better than others. Some political climates are better for certain people than others. All of that is life. Um, and to focus on what makes us happy and what makes us feel fulfilled and to walk in a way that we're completely unafraid um, in doing that, even when we are in a world full of fear and full of fear rhetoric is, is incredibly important. Um, I went to Barnard College and uh, Anna Quinlan uh, was a trustee. She may still be. And she's famous for having said that at Barnard, she majored in unafraid. Mm. And I have 
always taken that and held that very close. And fearlessness is one of my values. So I try to go for it every, and sometimes I fail, but I try to go for it. And I always feel most energized when I do. Um, but I think uh, to be selfish and to impose my values on other people, <laughs> I think um, we need to, in our own lives, major and unafraid. That's such an amazing closing note. So thank you so much for that. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me into your luxurious office. And Absolutely. I think you gave some really good calls to action. I know I'm going to, again, do the implicit bias test and uh, look more into the upstanders model, the ally model, and see how I can continue to hopefully learn and show up for communities. Absolutely. You are doing such fantastic work with that po with this podcast. I um, have been doing some listening and I'm doing a lot of learning um, and all of your listeners are lucky to have you. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining today. Absolutely. Take care, everyone. Bye. <laughs> thank you for listening to The Peak Podcast. Your support helps this podcast grow. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and then head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It is so much appreciated, and I will see you on the next episode.